Welcome to Flex Perspectives, where I interview the thought leaders, innovators, and executives shaping the future of flexible work. Flex Perspectives is brought to you by the Flex Index, the world's most robust source for full-time, hybrid, and remote work requirements. The Flex Index represents more than 4,000 companies, 25,000 office locations, and 100 million people. It's a great place to start if you're looking for your next flexible work career opportunity. Today, my guest is Phil Kirshner. Phil is a senior expert and associate partner at McKinsey, the global management consulting firm. He's a leader in McKinsey's real estate and organizational performance practices. Phil brings more than 20 years of experience in real estate and workplace strategy with former stints at Credit Suisse, JLL, and WeWork. He's been on the cutting edge of thinking about people and place for a long time, and I always find our conversations to be incredibly insightful, not just on what's happening now, but what trends might shape the next decade of real estate. Today, we're going to dig into three extremely important trends. I think every real estate and people leader will want to hear about this. First, the real estate function is increasingly reporting into HR. Why is that happening and what are the implications of that? Two, the key metrics to evaluate real estate are starting to change. What are those metrics now and what are some of the implications of doing that? And then three, maybe counterintuitively, your future vibrant office might actually be a smaller office. And so we'll talk about what that means. But first, Phil, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you, Rob, for having me. Uh, so to get started, over the last 13 years, now you've been able to explore real estate from, I guess, a number of different vantage points, right? First as an operator at Credit Suisse, then as a consultant at JLL, advising on workforce strategy, as a leader at WeWork, exploring the future of real estate and community, and now at McKinsey. So tell me a little bit about how those varied experiences help you spot and identify potential trends. Yeah. So, you know, I got started as a workplace strategist by accident. Uh, I was in the right place, right time at Credit Suisse when the CFO decided to start exploring new ways of working, uh, had been convinced about the problem that our offices at the time were both like emptier than we would have liked uh, and not as liked uh, by the employees at large. And because I don't have a design or engineering or engineering, yes, but not design, uh, architecture, facilities background, um, I had to learn by doing uh, my first task was actually to reverse engineer some of the research that had been conducted on us by specialists at the time. So came into this question of how do we manage, design, and occupy real estate you know, as progressive and mobile and flexible and experiential way possible um, by consuming all of the, the best versions of what people had tried out there from really sort of traditional companies like the bank I was at and more progressive-oriented like technology firms. So having to learn by doing, learning from the best and with no preconceived notion that anything that had been done so far, the way we're doing it was the right way, uh, really set me down a path, I think, of being 110% convinced in new ways of working and that the way offices are delivered and operated were generally uh, left a lot to be improved. Um, and then going to the consulting side really just increased the visibility of, of clients and projects that I had access to. She taught me to be a real real estate professional, um, getting to traffic with and understand how project management and brokerage and occupancy planning and the entire ecosystem of actually delivering a building, not just the workplace projects that I've been used to, um, how that worked, uh, and greater exposure to all of the accounts and clients that JLL um, had sort of exposure to billions of square feet of real estate, right? Like uh, many orders of magnitude more than you could learn uh, on the client side, no matter how many people that you ask for advice. And then WeWork ultimately just strengthened my backbone on the role of activation and 
what's happening in the place when you are driving events and community that's so much more than just the design and technology. Uh, and capping it at McKinsey, which is sort of the best place to be for interdisciplinary research on holistically the future of work, not just like workplace. Uh, and I'm having a ton of fun so far after a year and a half or so. That's awesome. Uh, and I certainly understand that. I, I started my career, as, as we've spoken about in the past at Bain. And so you know, in consulting, you definitely get an opportunity to to see more faster in a way that allows you to just spot trends interesting right? Like exactly. Velocity and uh, diversity of use cases to refine what what is kind of uniquely human in our demands for space in my case and the things that really do need to be refined based on individual clients and culture. Yeah, absolutely. So you wrote something that I thought was pretty fascinating uh, a little while back about how uh, real estate function, increasingly you're seeing report into the HR function. And that's obviously a pretty big change from the way that a lot of organizations at least have been organized historically. Tell me a little bit about that. Why is it happening in your mind? Yeah, sure. So to sort of to level set, uh, as I usually tell someone, if you tell me you work in real estate at a big company and I know nothing else than that, I don't know what kind of company, I don't know what industry, it's still true today that the odds are best that you report into some kind of finance or cost management function. That is still the highest percentage uh, of, of where that group rolls up. Um, second to finance, operations, COO, procurement, supply chain, that's also very common for companies in the business of making and moving physical goods of any kind. Uh, because again, this, this sort of supply chain and logistics connection to real estate, uh, it makes sense. And third has always been HR, but that percentage is slowly increasing, uh, even in surprising industries like those that make it and sort of move goods uh, or even professional services or financial services firms where uh, real estate was managed as an asset always. And my thinking about this really was informed uh, prior to COVID, but being in a room full of real estate experts, at like at an industry event and someone from a consumer goods company stood up and said, we in our group, the corporate services that reported up through HR in that case, think about real estate as an employee relations event and not just an asset. So it still obviously is an asset. But when he said that, I, you know, I, I uh, almost like broke my pencil reaching for it so quickly to write that down. And it stuck with me ever since this concept. If you think about place in the impact that it has on your employees and candidates and clients and partners like these or retail and hospitality industry does. Think about the role that place has and how we feel. Um, very logically, you may find where either workplace on its own or real estate holistically is going to land or, or be stronger connected to the human resources function because they are the arbiters of the employee experience writ large. And COVID just ripped the band-aid on this, basically, and forced real estate decisions and workplace flexibility into the C-suite in a way that it never was before. Uh, and with the policy questions being led by HR, it's a very natural extension to say, maybe the, maybe the right thing for us is to take on responsibility for that function. So, so it sounds like, if I'm understanding correctly, that, that in some ways it underlies a a strategic shift that maybe already was taking place in some organizations prior, but maybe accelerated given, yes. is, that, is, that, is that correct? Yes, and that I would say generally COVID has accelerated trends that people like me already believed in pretty strongly, right? The role of uh, hospitality and real estate and the fact that sharing was going to be a foregone conclusion at some point right? because of the 
uh, the inefficiency of how space was managed before and the fact that most people didn't like their office. Um, the only thing preventing them from making a more retail-oriented decision about whether or not to go was cultural and managerial pressure and expectation to be there. So now that that's been removed five or 10 years faster than we all thought it was going to be, and all of a sudden, uh, yeah, it brought it to the table in a way that felt <laughs> very new, but not unexpected, I think, for sure. It's super interesting. And and what does that mean about, if you think about the relationship between real estate and HR, you know, that's a pretty different relationship when when one reports into the other. What does that mean strategically for the way both real estate is viewed, but also how it might operate vis-a-vis people on a go-forward basis? Yeah. And look, all of this comes back to the fact that any any workplace strategist worth their salt um, would have told you years ago and still would say now, like, if you want to get this project done, this this new way of working, whether it's a whole portfolio or one site, you're going to need a committee of people working together that is primarily a three-legged stool. It's always IT, HR, real estate. Those players were always working together. They had to. They couldn't avoid each other, but it was largely by committee. And now, in order to deliver more um, holistic workplace programs spanning the physical and digital, you're seeing the emergence of new, uh, not just new reporting lines for real estate, but new roles, like head of employee experience, head of dynamic work, head of remote, head of virtual first, um, head of people and place as a potential new title for the head of human resources. So the fact that someone is being elevated at the executive level to what it feels head of what it feels like to work here um, draws that connection between those two roles, like in that that straight reporting line. What's different for the person who is functionally responsible for real estate is a need to kind of integrate and understand human capital measures and information in real time. It's no longer sufficient to say, you know, I'm kind of taking average headcounts. Uh, or average assumptions of like what groups maybe what building like it needs to be your leasing system needs to be connected in real time to your people system or your performance system your engagement survey system right so it's all connected uh, at the same time and maybe the biggest change for for leaders coming traditionally from HR is that relative to IT or real estate is a generalization the human resources function does not have to manage kind of capital projects in the way that the other two do, right? Annual capital budgets, capital planning, uh, even just the financial and accounting complexities of those investments and associated depreciation. Like maybe for HR, you have one major project to overhaul your your people system every couple of years, but um, that uh, familiarity with the capital management process and the relationship then it forms unavoidably with your finance and accounting function is new. They feel very new to leaders on the HR side. It's very interesting to think about that because while it's not the same bucket of capital in the sense that capital expenditures and operating expenditures get viewed a little bit differently and budgeted differently, the idea of both of those coming together and in theory being under the purview of an HR leader um, who's responsible for thinking about the overall deployment of that capital is a pretty different kind of like budget experience, you know? Than... Yeah. Yeah. And actually, you just made me realize like uh, the words kind of connection and community often come up in conversations about the return to the office. So we, we want to come back because it's something communal that we're missing. And we put out some research a couple months ago about the importance of access to an ability to get after it social capital and the recommendation from my colleagues who did the research that I really love was we believe 
you need to put social capital on the table with all other forms of business capital, just like you're, you're literally like technology capital management, real estate capital management. It is something else you have to think of and manage in that way formally uh, and not just think kind of conceptually or ethereally like, oh, we're here for, for community. It's like, no, no, this is about social capital for our employees, which has suffered during COVID and we need to use place to reinvigorate it in a way that it wasn't before. Makes a lot of sense. I want to go back to something that you you started to touch on a, a, a couple of minutes ago around uh, the metric evolution and how, as a real estate leader, maybe the metrics you looked at before versus in this new world maybe look a little bit different. Uh, I think that's a very interesting topic. Like, tell me a little bit about you know classically for a real estate leader, what are the couple of things that you're you're really staring at or, or measuring on a regular basis, and, and how is that maybe evolving in this in this new structure or way of working? Sure. So the the balance historically, there were always three primary types of metrics for workplace. Here I use here like all the three E's. It's efficiency, less or better used, uh, effectiveness. How you know how productive largely can your employees be like in the space and then the experience. But the balance was very heavily skewed towards efficiency, with the top metrics being probably total occupancy cost per something, either per human or per seat or per location, uh, sort of fully loaded, right? What am I paying for my lease, my electricity, my facilities management? Um, then some measure of occupancy or vacancy, how many humans are in theory assigned to this space and sort of conversely, how many desks and offices that we have don't have names on the door because the number of people assigned to this space is you know, less than the number of seats that we have in it, and then some measure of density. And density was almost always like square feet per person at a time when uh, the industry really meant square feet per seat. We were talking about how the space was built, not occupied, but pre-COVID, almost one-to-one assumption. I could say people are seated, and it's supposed to mean the same thing, even though those two things are very different. Yeah, that math seems... The math seems a lot more straightforward in a world where people are in the office, presumably five days presumably a week, and I can draw right. that correlation really easily. Right. And that uh, people are not seats, seats are not people problem used to drive me. It still drives me nuts. But I was talking about that quite frequently before COVID. Now, I think maybe where your next question likely is, is what, what metrics have changed? Um, that problem is no longer avoidable, that they are different. Yeah. And, uh, and as they maybe untether a little bit and real estate is both the real estate function is both thinking about what is the right way of evaluating our function but also what's the right way maybe of evaluating it in the context of overall employee experience or the investments that we make what are you starting to see is maybe at new metrics or new focus points that weren't there previously yeah i think so kind of following the density point right like it you said the the translation is harder now even even when you say per person, and I can clarify with you that like you are talking about humans and not seats. Like, great, I'm on the same wavelength. Now there's this whole new follow-up question of which people? Is it sort of all humans that work for you within a potentially commutable distance of this building? Is it all of them excluding the ones that you know are never expected to be in the office because either they were or they are now fully remote? Is it just the humans who are in the building today? What, what even was perceived to be an, a simple metric before is no longer s- simple because you need six layers of footnotes to articulate which one are you talking about? 
which makes it much harder to benchmark against anybody else. Which I find um, sort of executives are looking for this benchmark. What is the new answer on density? I'm like, I don't even see three clients in a row using the same definition of that same word. So it's very challenging. Uh, for new metrics, I think the interesting one, ones I'm hearing about are for sort of average number of visits for a given individual over a certain period of time. So profiling their behavior. Do I show up once a week, once a month, once a quarter? Like what, what is my demand on our workplace, not only site to site, but even if you thought of an entire company's portfolio as one gigantic building, right? How many employees go visit the building each week, each month, each year? Uh, and there's no right answer for any of those yet, but it's really interesting to use to compare not just the daily uh, show up at the building level, but the, the behavior of the person. Second from that, maybe my, my most favorite uh, recently from a company that lives very much in this uh, virtual first, but not placeless world that I advocate for a lot, where they, they have buildings, they're still building, but you don't have to go. Employees have complete autonomy it's about that choice day to day. They're thinking about a metric on average cost per visit. So not total occupancy sort of per person, but just changing the you know, changing half the fraction and saying with the fully loaded costs of this site over some period of time, divided by the number of times that like distinct people in our ecosystem come here, what is that cost? And if you do that exercise again, without knowing what the benchmark should or shouldn't be, if you have an office in New York, but you don't have one, let's say, in Chicago. So therefore, your employees in Chicago are forced every single time they want to be together to do it transactionally. Day pass at a co-working site or get a business center at a hotel, right? Like they're paying for every single moment that you could, in theory, compare those two. And if there is a, a markup in the location where you have your own site, you're, it's there all the time, right? You're paying for energy and facilities. So presumably more expensive. That difference is really the, the kind of cultural premium. And is that working over time? You say in the places where you're paying for having your own space is the outcome for employee engagement or experience or business performance different. I don't know. I'm fascinated to see, but I love that logic of thinking about it per visit. What does that cost? Uh, and then maybe the most progressive extension of density is going not just from built or occupied density, but experienced density. When we are all here, kind of like in chemistry class, if we were to fan out like equidistant from each other, arm's length, right? So I'm, I'm as close to everybody else in this building as I am to you. What is that distance? And what does that feel like? Uh, and that has to be connected to like what environment we're in, what it feels like, what is going on. Because if we sit you know, on an airplane, uncomfortably close. Almost everybody would say airplane seats, we are uncomfortably close. But it's not that much closer than you might be at the hot restaurant in town when the whole experience is like, oh, this is okay. This is hospitality. This is vibe. So I'm, my perception of what closeness means changes. Uh, so those like the, yeah, visits per person, cost per visit, and sort of experience density. I'm really excited to see companies starting to wade into. I, I really, I'm going to, I want to dig deeper in a second into that experience density because I find that topic to be very interesting. Just before you go there, one of the things that strikes me as you're describing the different types of 
things you might want to measure and even translating that not just for measurement, but to outcomes. You were talking about things like engagement. I can imagine other things like promotion, retention, et cetera. Do companies have the data and like the data systems today to actually be able to track this stuff or how prepared are organizations beyond just going through the thought process to actually be able to say, look, if we want to go figure this out, we actually have the data and systems to be able to do that. Yeah, I think I think a lot of large enterprises are actually more prepared for this than maybe they realize. Um, years ago at Credit Suisse, when I was still on the occupier side uh, and starting to think about rolled out our mobility programs of sharing in some sites that were large enough that we realized like, oh, hold on, like we've got maybe a third of an entire city in this program now. So that that is a it's a quorum. Can we tell if it's working? Not just on our terms in real estate, on, on utilization, but on somebody else's measure, largely like HR. So I went to human resources at the time that had a sort of full operating people analytics function, right? PhDs and data scientists, uh, and asked them, you know, hey, take engagement, right? The engagement or performance uh, or attrition. How many ways can you slice and dice that information? You just take the engagement survey. And I remember them joking to me then that they're like, oh, we have everything. We could even slice it by you know people's favorite color, even though they've never told us. Like we know everything. It was very confident. Besides all the easy stuff, right? Are, are you an early tenure employee? Are you a manager? Are you a man? Are you a woman? Are you in, you know, this place or that place. So I said, great, we've just moved a third of a city into a wildly new way of working. Can you please show me the results for them versus everybody else? And it seemed like such a simple question, but I was surprised to find out they're like, actually, no, we can't because we can go down to the city level, but we have never thought before that the sub-city location as a variable would matter. And then it said nothing to do with remote. This was just Old space, new space, assigned space, shared space, big cavernous office, little itty bitty desk, right? Any other variable. Like we've never thought about that, which was first surprising, not now in retrospect, but the answer to then get it wasn't complicated. They said, oh, like it's just another column. Like if you can help us stratify everybody by old space, new space, shared, not whatever whatever the variable is, we can just put it through our existing mechanisms and reporting and analytics to see if it makes a difference. So the, the, the mechanism was there. The expertise was there. They just never considered the variable. And now it's the same, right? If you have a variable somewhere in your people system about someone's work location or flexible behavior, not what, not what policy is applied to me, but like, what am I actually doing? Going back maybe to that average visits per some period of time. Like, are you less than, you know, 25%? Are you up to 50? Are you so just put people into a bucket and then do the same analysis you've been doing for years for a variety of other reasons. Diversity issues, right? For years, companies have been looking at sort of pay equity or promotion velocity for different groups. People the, the analysis is there. It's just a new piece of information and realizing that it can matter to human capital outcomes and business outcomes. Makes perfect sense. So in some ways, it almost feels like the bigger challenge is getting organizations or even internal alignment within an organization around, is this the right way to look at this? How are we going to measure? What do we care about? And then we have a lot of the data. We need to cross it with maybe a new location or office usage or something like that type of variable. But that starts to give you some pretty interesting 
understanding of what you're doing. Yeah. And the companies I think have been most comfortable doing progressive things post-COVID were the ones that had a, had a language for that before. There was no right or wrong, but they were already presenting information about utilization site to site or the, you know, in the same breath of saying, oh, have we, you know, promoted population A faster than population B? They're also saying, have we, like one of those A or B populations is remote or not. They were doing it before. So the, their executives have just understood the discussion and are now panicking about never having thought about this before or struggling with assumptions about how space was being used or experienced before, um, they can just tighten the screws on ratios or think more comprehensively about what to do to support those groups if the balance isn't whatever they want it to be instead of panicking that we don't have it, we don't know. Got it. That makes perfect sense. So I want to go back to to something that obviously, given we both live in New York, is near and dear to our hearts, which is the the experience of a restaurant when all the tables are super close together. And it's interesting because you you also spoke, I think, not too long ago with the Wall Street Journal about this topic and, and more specifically around what does it feel like to be in an office when it's empty? And what are the implications, not just for that person, but culturally across an organization of an empty office? Explain a little bit more about what that office vibe is and wh- why, does that, why does that matter so much right now? Yeah, I think we all know what vibe and energy is. We just aren't used to experiencing it in something that we think of as the office. Uh, probably the most common question, me and all my colleagues at WeWork that were doing executive tours uh, over and over and over again was that would get was some version of why does it feel like this? Like, I, I can see the elevator. I just got here. I'm still holding my coat. I, I haven't even come to like find the person I'm meeting with yet. Why does it feel like this? What is going on around me? And the answer, of course, then was a very carefully curated uh, series of, you know, technology, music, people, design, uh, like algorithmically fine-tuned to make it feel like that. But most companies at the same time always struggle, and I'm as guilty as anyone, in a like traditionally even very well-designed office environment, the energy somewhat naturally gets diluted. We don't put the center of gravity of all the energy like on display. We don't activate it enough to make people feel safe to work there. Design many beautiful lounge spaces where, you know, prior to opening, we say like, this is where everyone's going to hang out. But it's a bank or a professional services firm. And like people don't end up hanging out there because it's not culturally acceptable to like sit on the couch. And if it's not okay for... 10 people to sit on the couch, like the, 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 energy, the, the, the snowball won't like start rolling, right. To, to keep that energy there. And almost every corporate real estate or facilities management professional has been trained over years to fear the red line. It is always a scarcity mentality. What if we don't have enough space? And this was even when, you know, peak daily utilization for a, like a knowledge worker oriented company might have been in the 80 percent never a hundred right but even then like a, a feeling of scarcity was really scary because if you grew too fast if things were too crowded and you were told we need more it could take years right? like you can never get space quickly so we've been conditioned to stay very far away from the red line. But at WeWork and other sort of community-oriented uh, workplaces, I think they'd all say, like, 
living at the red line is when the interesting stuff happens, right? Race cars like perform best, or you find out how to make them perform best when they're like at the red line. That's when, you know, when there is a little bit of scarcity of space, maybe that one person is always like, I kind of wish I could work on the couch, but no one else does. So I'm not going to. Now they're like, I have no choice. There is no seat. Great. I get to go sit in the lounge. But then someone else goes, I also kind of would like to do that. Or like, hey, let's all go work there. That might be fun. And then someone is holding court on a whiteboard in the lounge. And it's like you create the FOMO and the magnetism that everyone wants in their office now. So we have to, we have to be okay living a little bit at the, at the edge, knowing especially now with the explosion and availability of flexible, serviced, co-working, and other like agile spaces, like especially in big city, you can get space when you need space. It may not be your long-term solution, but employees can feel supported uh, in knowing that there is a place to go with a better defined like, purpose for their office. Uh, but that we need to, yeah, we need to be okay, like allowing for a higher level of energy, which does mean compressing the molecules a bit back to the uh, chemistry class metaphor. I love that what you said about the red line and the idea that at the red line is where interesting things happen. I think that's really, really well put. You know, it, it's interesting because if I tie a couple of things that you're talking about together, one, that there's a certain amount of energy that comes from people being not just in the same place, but somewhat close in the same place. Two, you know, if I think about the, the social equivalent of that, of the, 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 the example I use quite often is if you go to a party where all the people that you want to be there are there, but the room is too big and something just feels off about the party environment versus yeah. like right, right size space for right group, if that makes sense. Uh, it makes me wonder that combined with, as you mentioned, there being more availability in a lot of urban environments for space, even if it's not your long-term solution, is smaller office actually an important approach in terms of maybe you go that direction to get closer to the red line does that actually create more momentum than to create the type of environment you want and more demand to come into the office? Yeah, I, I don't know if smaller is better necessarily. Maybe it's like elastic is better. When we go to the party that feels like too big, you sort of want to be like, can we just close the door? I'm like, oh, oh, that's better. Like it feels more natural. So elastic, but higher experience. Uh, their standard chartered bank, to their credit, I think created a program, the name of which I have now seen appearing in other places because it's so clever. Uh, around creating the sort of like half the space, twice the experience, which I think for the the landlord version of that also is like, yes, I might sell you half the space in the future, but I will charge you twice as much for that space per square foot because in theory it is better, right? It is more digital, more flexible, more service-oriented, more hospitality. That's what we want. We will pay more per capita, like for, the, for a smaller version of a nicer thing. Uh, and... As long as the, yeah, as long as the boundaries can kind of expand and contract around us and that there is someone responsible for that balance, right? Uh, in any sharing environment before could almost like guarantee to a client, say, look, I, I promise you, this is going to work. It's going to be fine. At the environmental level, we're not doing anything so crazy that you really will ever be in, in a point of scarcity, but there will be balance issues room to room, neighborhood to neighborhood, right? It's very hard to solve at the micro level. So as long as you are prepared for that elasticity, you're messaging to people that you may have to like move to a different room at the party uh, and that there's someone who is the party host, using your sort of analogy, keeping an eye on that and actively messaging. They're like, I'm here for you. 
to help resolve the balance issues, that's really engaging. And not just assume that you're going to know the right answer and you will not be able to, to like get over that line and leave it and assume it's done. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And it really ties back to that metric point you're making before around the experience per unit of investment or square foot or however you want to think about it in the office. Maybe just one last question on this topic. It strikes me that there may be implications then over time for the the number of properties or offices that companies operate. And, and does this lead you to, do we still believe that in the future you're going to have the really large corporate headquarters? Uh, for example, the the Microsofts and Redmond, for example? Or does this lead you to a lot more smaller footprints in different places where you kind of like can curate that experience? Do you think it's one way or the other or... Uh, uh, like the headquarters matters, right? The headquarters is the sort of <laughs> the retail store version of our culture, like allowing us to do things in privately controlled and curated spaces that accelerate our business objectives and are very difficult to do at someone else's terms. So I think the purpose of those sites will change radically and really employees are seeking uh, authentic and, and specific articulation of like why, what is happening here? What magic is here? that can only happen here. And we're really like building a whole ecosystem around it. That's great. They may get slightly smaller over time, but what I do like, and what I don't think will happen is this sort of complete proliferation of hub and spoke that we are in of a little bit where a company that had 20 sites on its list doesn't want to have 50 sites on its list. It wants to narrow down to the sites that are most impactful, highest value for the organization, and then know that employees are consuming a very diverse and large uh, ecosystem of spaces transactionally, temporarily to meet their needs. So we don't think of, like, I'm at home right now. Uh, McKinsey does not think of my house as part of our workplace portfolio. It is in a way, right? It's like all the places that are serving us. And we do need to have a good handle over the decisions that employees are making about where to go and what to consume that isn't ours so that we can you know, follow those uh, sort of desire path of like where employees and teams are going to places and signaling we want to be in this part of town or this kind of resource. If it's happening a lot, that is an opportunity to maybe step in and say, there's something I can control there or make the experience better for you by you know, taking ownership of the shell, we can control every little aspect. But until then, knowing that at any one time, 50, 60, you know, percent maybe of your whole consumption of space, all of your people isn't yours and will be done like as a service. We do that in so many other elements of our business. It's just been really scary historically to think about doing that in place. Yeah, absolutely. What an amazing change of experience over the last few years to go to a world right. with 50 yeah. to 60%, you know, may not be a year. Right. So, so, uh, Phil, this has been awesome. Every episode we end with a couple minutes of rapid fire questions, just to learn a little bit more about you and your interests. So I'm going to throw a few things out at you. Okay. Sure. All right. So let's start with the early days. What was your very first job? My first paying job, uh, was doing desktop support at a market data company down on Wall Street here in New York, where I'm from. So that was an amazing entry just to financial services. Uh, so, you know, I used to eat lunch in the courtyard of World Trade Center. Like, so I, I started young here and getting the Wall Street commute kind of got that that bug for the speed of it all. <laughs> that makes sense how you end up with Credit Suisse then doing that. Yes, so. that's exactly how. <laughs> uh, all right. What is the, what's the best book you've read lately? Uh, best book, most influential book during COVID, even out of here, this one. <laughs> a world without email by Cal Newport about all the things that are broken with the way we think about 
email, meeting culture, business process, autonomy, async, like remote uh, from someone who I appreciate as a, uh, as a computer science student, is a computer science professor first and foremost, and not just like an author or a thought leader. Uh, so that, yeah, it is the closest book within reach to me sitting here during COVID and has, has stayed that way. I will have to check that out. Um, yeah. Video conference, are you typically video on or video off? Video on, but fewer meetings. Good answer. Uh, what show or movie are you obsessed with right now? Uh, I will be obsessed with Ted Lasso season three when it comes out. Also I bit, love Ted Lasso. Uh, re-engaging with The Mandalorian as of this week. So excited about that. But yeah, bit, very much wait for Ted Lasso. <laughs> it's it's great. Uh, favorite office snack? Uh, barista made cappuccinos. Does that count as a snack? I'm a sucker for a good barista. I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, favorite piece of flexible work software? Uh, there's probably two categories of software which I have loved and used sort of personally, which are harder to use in a much more corporate context. I don't want to pick like a favorite, but one would be sort of uh, the low-code, no-code database creating or like really dynamic document creating tools. So like an Airtable or Notion. Uh, and then on the other side, the sort of asynchronous voice and video sharing and recording tools like a Loom or a Yak. Uh, Microsoft and Slack like, have versions of that, but I love the smaller, more lightweight ones when I was working on my own, especially. Totally. Makes sense. Uh, one future of work or workplace thinker that you really admire and respect? One? Uh, uh, if you want one, that's really hard. So I come from the world of the built environment and what people think about the built uh, space. And during COVID, I've gotten to reconnect a lot uh, with a woman named Kate Lister from Global Workplace Analytics, who has always been out there uh, researching the edge of fully remote work for years before it was kind of cool. And we were, we were peripherally in each other's ecosystem then, but forcibly have gotten to like get closer now and, and share stories from both sides of the uh, the equation. Funny enough, I just met Kate yesterday for the first She's time. She's great. Oh, love it. And uh, last question, where should listeners go if they want to read more or learn more about you? Uh, LinkedIn, probably the best platform to hear what I have to say. And for McKinsey, uh, I curate our kind of best thinking around flexible workplace from across multiple practices at uh, mck.co slash workplace. Awesome. Uh, Phil, such a pleasure. So interesting oh, to so. hear your perspective. Uh, really appreciate you joining me. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Please also consider giving us a rating or leaving a review as that helps other listeners find the podcast. For more Flex Index content, including past episodes, our Flex Index newsletter, and monthly research reports, visit flex.scoopforwork.com. See you next time.